Uh, week two, here we go on reconstruction, building good faith in an age of deconstruction. And yeah, kids, you can hit the road. Um, they don't need me to tell them that, but, and y'all, y'all pray for Miss Tammy. She's averaging over a hundred kids on Sunday back there and about 80 of them are in this service. So uh, y'all, y'all pray for her. And if any of y'all want to not pray and do some action, volunteer for her. That would be even better. Um, anyway, I, I think I've got, uh, something that may help just a little bit. For those of you who were a little uncomfortable with last week's sermon, and, and if you were, that's fine. It was, you, were, you were not alone. Anytime the preacher starts with, I don't know where I'm going, uh, it makes people a little uncomfortable. So I kind of had three main reactions to last week's message. Uh, the first one was people who were excited about it. So there was a group of people who were like, I, I am so excited about this and looking forward to this series, and I, I can't wait to see where we go with this, either because maybe they've been through kind of a process of deconstruction themselves or a process of reconstruction or in most cases it's because somebody they love is going through it like they've got a grown child or a, or a spouse or a, a real close friend and they're like I just want to understand where they're coming from I just I, so I'm looking forward to this because I want to understand what they're thinking and where they're coming from uh, the second group were kind of cautiously optimistic and most of these were online and we did have more views online last week than we normally do. But most of these were online because they don't really necessarily feel safe in church right now or sure that church is really the spot for them. But they kind of stumbled across the, the hashtag and were like, I'll be interested to see where you go. Or, you know, this is going to be interesting. Or I'll, I'll, I'm curious to see what happens here. And so these were folks that were like cautiously hopeful is the way I would describe them. And then the third group were the folks that were like... Do we have to, like, do we have to talk? I don't want to talk about this stuff. I don't want to, I don't want to think about hard things on Sunday morning. I don't want to have to worry about all this stuff. I just, I want to come to church on Sunday and, you know, like, uh, get my Jesus on and go home and take a nap. I don't, I don't want to worry about stuff like deconstruction on Sunday morning. It's just exhausting. And, um, and I totally get that, and I understand where you're coming from. You know, we, we do like to be comforted on Sunday morning, but I'm not sure that, um, a good preacher can only comfort. Uh, we got a challenge sometimes too. So I, I ran across something in my reading this week that might explain those different reactions and, and might explain why we're coming from because we approach a message like this and we actually we approach church at different stages of our faith. And so the book I was reading is this one right here. It's uh, Brian McLaren. It's Faith After Doubt. And in it, he talks about the different stages of faith. And so he, he talks about four stages of faith. I'm only going to introduce you to three of them today. But he talks about the first stage of faith is something that all of us go through. And it's, it, he defines it as simplicity. And he said, um, stage one simplicity starts from the moment we're born. Because our parents start instilling that in us from the moment we're born. Because the world is basically black and white. There's, there's no nuance. There's no shades of gray. It's all black and white. And so our parents teach us it's this or that. Uh, it's right or wrong, it's good or bad, um, it's, you know, it's just, it's like from the moment we're born, you know, don't eat that, or uh, don't touch that, or don't go there, or don't listen to those people, or don't follow that person, or don't trust this person, you know, like it's, you're just learning to kind of simple obedience, if you will, simple trust, uh, everything is, is very easily, you know, falls into one of two categories, and in this stage of faith, uh, authority is to be trusted, 
And so you learn, like when you're a little kid, your parents are teaching you what authority you can trust. And your parents are first, and then you can trust the pastor, or you can trust a Sunday school teacher, or you can trust your teacher at school or whatever. So you're learning to trust authority. This is uh, stage one simplicity is all about uh, simple obedience, simple trust, and unquestioned loyalty to authority. And then we become teenagers. Uh, and, and everybody know, like in adolescence, somewhere, whether it's early or late, and it may even be in our 20s and 30s when we go through this, but somewhere along the way, we start to question that simple view of the world. We start to question, like, we question the authority, and we start to question whether or not the rules were truly as absolute as they told us were. they were. And we start to see that there's different there's nuance in some of these things, and there's different interpretations of, of Bible passages that we were told had very clear and simple answers, but we start to see there's different interpretations, and there's different groups that see these passages differently, and there's different ways of understanding the world or different ways of understanding faith than the one way we were taught to understand it. And for some of us, it looks like abandoning the whole thing. Like for some people, it, you know, it looks like just kind of walking all the way into atheism. But for most of us, that's stage two is defined as complexity. So stage one is simplicity, stage two is complexity. For most of us, it doesn't look like abandoning faith. It just looks like a different expression of faith. So we kind of hang on to a lot of the same core truths that we had. It's just this might be when we, we join a different denomination than the one we grew up in. Or we might go to a different church than the one we grew up in. Or we might uh, start listening to, to different preachers. Or we might start reading different authors. Or we might start... Uh, uh, listening to different speakers who present uh, a different expression of the same thing that we had always learned. And churches, not surprisingly, are full of a lot of folks in stage one or stage two faith. So sometimes after a period of complexity and asking these questions, we go back into a period of simplicity. It's just that our definition of faith may look different than it did when we were a kid, but we get just as you know, adamant about that version of faith than we did when we were kids. So, so sometimes it can, you know, we still go back to that simple trust, simple obedience, and those kinds of things. But McLaren says, you know, there's a huge religious market for people in simplicity and complexity. Because that's who most of us are. Those of us still in church are folks that are usually in, in one of those two stages. And this is what he says. I'll read you a little bit of him. He says, every year they, talking about we, every year uh, they need more sermons, books, radio and TV shows, podcasts, conferences, courses, retreats, camps, churches, and mission trips to help them maintain and strengthen their stage of faith. Many preachers become celebrities, some of them super rich celebrities, by proclaiming the six steps to this, the five principles to that, the nine secrets to something else. And people are willing to pay a lot, of pro a lot for the promise of answered prayers, sweet marriages, and smiling children who never need counseling. Not to mention the promise of eternal life after blessed success in this life. And they're willing to pay a lot for the promise of prosperity at or above middle class or for the privilege of being part of a growing mega church with great facilities, lots of dynamic programs, and connections to the rich, famous, and powerful. Not to mention the prestige of being one of God's chosen people, called out and set apart from the leftovers of sinful humanity. So aided by an ample supply of religious products and professionals, the faithful lay a solid foundation of stage one simplicity upon which they build an elegant mansion of stage two complexity. And from the top floor, the view is amazing and life is abundant. Except when it isn't. 
And that's when some feel so stuck, so trapped, so stagnant that they decide to burn down the whole structure. And on their way out of the burning building, many grab for some mementos of faith to save and others barely make it out alive, saving nothing but their lives. And when the smoke clears, all that's left is doubt. Now, McLaren is not popular in evangelical circles. In case you're wondering, his writing might give you some indication uh, that he's not popular in evangelical circles. And um, I even hesitated to like mention his book this morning because it, it would get me in trouble in some circles. Like, I can't believe preachers reading Brian McLaren. Goodness, what kind of preacher is that? Um, but there's a, and I'm going to give you a disclaimer. There's a difference between referencing books and recommending books. Okay, everything that I mention in a sermon is not a recommendation for me. There's stuff in McLaren's book that I disagree with. I read a chapter this morning that I was like, mm, I don't know that I buy that. But when I'm teaching a series like this, I try to read from all sides. So I read from Brian McLaren and Sarah Held Evans, and I read from the Gospel Coalition. And I'm just reading all sides because I'm trying to come to my own conclusions about this stuff. And so I want to hear what every side is saying. So... You know, if you go buy this book, the reason I mention it is because some of you will go out and buy this book because, ooh, that's me, I'm in that situation. And you'll buy it and you'll be reading it and go, wow, I can't believe our pastor agrees with all this. Well, I didn't say I agreed with all of it. I do agree with some of it. And I agree with this part right here. I think, he, I think he's right here. Like, I, I think he's, his, his criticism, although it's, it's biting, is fairly accurate. And what he describes at the very end is the feeling that some of you may have had uh, you may have been through that experience, or some of you online may be in that experience right now, where you move from stage two into stage three, which is defined as perplexity. So simplicity, complexity, and perplexity. And it's, it's when the doubts become, like, perplexed, we usually move into the, stage, the third state of faith uh, through crisis. Something happens, and our world falls apart. And the simple answers just don't work anymore. And the formulas and the predictable, it's like the, the three steps to a great marriage that we, that preacher talked about, it just, that didn't work. And, the, you know, the seven steps of highly effective people, it just didn't work. And the five purposes of a purpose trip, it just didn't work. And like the old formulas and the old patterns didn't work anymore. And we started to realize that life is a whole lot messier than that. It's not as simple as do this or, or pray this and this is going to turn out. And it, like, it, and some people get very frustrated. He talks about, you know, like they burn the whole house down on the way out. Because some of us get very frustrated with faith during this time. And you hear things like, we did everything we were supposed to do. We did everything we were supposed to do. We came to church. We got the kids in Sunday school. Um, like we went to the retreat. We went on the mission trip. We, we prayed. We read our Bible. Um, you know, we, we read The Purpose Driven Life, we did the Beth Moore study, like we, we did it all, we did everything we were supposed to do, so why did my marriage not make it? Or why do my kids not believe anymore? Or why am I still depressed? I've prayed, and pray, why am I still wrestling with anxiety? Or why did I get sick? Or, or why, why am I tempted to use, I mean like all the, like I did everything I was supposed to do because there's this thing. And, and a lot of times in stage one and stage two faith, there's kind of a promise with it. Like all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord. And we, we interpret that passage as saying to us, if you will do A, B, and C, a great blessed life's going to follow. And when the great blessed life doesn't follow, that's when we move into stage three faith, which is perplexity, which is saying what in the world is going on? 
Like we, we, and, and if you're in that stage of faith, then you quickly discover that faith communities are, usually don't make a lot of room for perplexity. Like churches usually don't make a lot of room for folks who are going through uh, a crisis. And that, I mean, that's a sad reality. So churches don't, like, it, it, there's not a lot of room for dissent and disagreement in church. And, and many times it's like, we, I don't even know that we're dissenting. I don't even know that we're disagreeing. I don't know what I'm believing right now. I'm just asking hard questions. And a lot of times churches don't allow uh, for hard questions. And a lot of churches don't allow preachers to address hard questions. Like, uh, there's, there's some churches, like, I, I wouldn't even be allowed to talk about this stuff. Don't talk about deconstruction. We ain't going to talk. Don't talk about the sins of the church. Don't talk about culture wars or political wars. Stay away from all of that stuff. You know, there's a lot of churches there I wouldn't have the freedom to do this. And there was a, a pastor, I don't have her name, I'm sorry, but um, she described this, this predicament because the reason preachers aren't allowed to talk about it and the reason there's not a lot of room in church to disagree or dissent and the reason there's not a lot of room for doubt in church or perplexity in church is because most of church is made up of stage one and stage two. And we just don't want to fool with it. Like we don't, we don't want because we're, we're kind of scared of where those questions are leading and we're kind of scared of where you're going to end up and it might force us to ask some of those questions ourselves. And so this, this pastor, she put it this way. She said, here's my predicament. If I preach what I learned in seminary, I'll probably lose my job because most of the people in my congregation have no interest in a stage three message, especially the loyal members who pay the bills. Most come to church for comfort, for confirmation of what they already think, to hear old familiar hymns and, and old familiar themes presented with just enough freshness to keep them interested. And they want sermons to be comfort food. And if I serve up a spiritual meal with kale, broccoli, and tofu rather than butter, salt, and sugar, they'll be grumbling for sure. And if I don't give them what they want, they'll just transfer to the spiritual restaurant down the street. And we've got a lot of spiritual restaurants in this town. Um, and I feel her pain. Like, I, I feel her pain. But I also feel the pain of members because I don't like tofu. <laughs> I don't like broccoli. And I don't like kale. And I don't like dealing with challenging topics. I, I really don't. Some of you are like, oh, yes, you do. You do it all the time. But I don't. I, I really don't because I always feel inadequate. I always go home and be like, you know, the people that I was trying to reach with the message still have unanswered questions. And the majority of the people who the message wasn't for, and, you know, sometimes I'm preaching messages that it's not for the majority. It's not for the saved. It's for the unsaved. And then the saved are frustrated because why are we talking about this stuff? And so I feel like, like both groups end up being disappointed. And what, what we've asked as a question as a church, since this church has been around, the 20 years that this church has been in existence, it, the question that we have tried to wrestle with, is it possible to make room for both groups? Like people who are doubting, people who are maybe burned out with faith, burned out with religion, questioning whether or not they want to keep following Jesus, question whether or not they want to keep coming to church. Is it possible for them to be welcomed in a group of people who aren't burned out with Jesus, who, who are in love with Jesus and want to be in church and want to be in a community of faith and, and are solid and firm in their faith? Is it possible for a, for a community of faith to welcome both groups of people? Is it possible for them to coexist? Is it possible to actually live out what we've kind of said is one of our philosophies of ministry uh, in matters of faith, unity, in matters of opinion, liberty, and in all things love? Is it really possible for a church to do that? Because it's easy to do when it's a matter of faith and we all agree on it. That's easy. We got unity. And when it's, an, when it's clearly an opinion, well, that's easy. We got liberty. I mean, if, if, if you know, we're talking about the color of the carpet in the sanctuary, well, that's, that's an opinion. We're free to have our own opinion on that stuff. 
But what happens when it's a matter of faith and we have different opinions or views on that? Or we have questions about that matter of faith. Is it possible to treat one another with love even in that circumstance? How do we do that? Like, is, is, how, do you, how do you create a community of faith like that? And the answer, I think, is, is in the Bible. And the guy who tried to create that community of faith, uh, largely, the guy who wrote a lot of this stuff, was the Apostle Paul, who you can clearly see if you follow his story, moving from stage two simplicity to complexity. To, you know, and, and I think Paul gives us some pretty good indications of how we can create a community of faith like that. Matter of fact, I'll read it uh, to you. It's, well, actually, I'm going to use it right here. Sorry. I'll read this right here to you. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. Again, he didn't write this for a wedding. He wrote it to a church, and it was to a church saying, you need to make room for each other. You need to come together with one another. They were fighting and arguing over a lot of different stuff, and he said, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. He addresses their divisions. He said, I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And he says this, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It um, does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no records of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And I think this is, this is part of the answer right here. Is that love has to be at the center of our community. Not beliefs, not doctrines, not you know, creeds, not denominational titles, not like that. That can't be at the, the center has to be love. And the reason I say that is because there was, you know, a savior that we follow who said that. You know, when they said, Jesus, what's the most important thing in the scripture? He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Like that, that love has to be at the center of it. And I think if we were able to treat one another with love, regardless of what stage of faith we were in, that would go a long way in creating a safe place like that. Like that would go, if we were able to say, like, we're going to treat people with patience and kindness and humility, and we won't be easily angered by their questions, and we won't be arrogant in our answers, and um, we won't keep score. There's not some kind of doctrinal scorecard as to who's the most doctrinally pure or who's the more orthodox or who has it right. We would, just, we would just treat each other with love. And, and like, could we together explore truth um, without condensation and judgment? Or condensation, condensation, not condensation. We, we can explore truth without condensation, but you got to have a good air system for that. But condensation, condensation you can't. But can we, can we explore it? Like, and just, can we just explore truth? As, as um, Paul, if you read the, the book of Acts, in Acts 17 and 18, several different times it mentions that Paul went to the synagogue with Jews and Greeks and he reasoned together with them. He went to the temple in Athens and he didn't condemn them, he didn't rebuke them, he, he reasoned together with them. Because Paul was trying to do something that he taught us to do. Paul called it speaking the truth in love. And I think this is the, the idea right here. Like we could interact with people uh, in a way that is loving. Could we, could we search for the truth together in a way 
uh, that is loving. And Paul calls it speaking the truth in love. And I've heard that taught my whole life. Uh, I've grown up in church and heard speaking the truth in love. And I've always thought Christians were really good at speaking the truth, but terrible at speaking it in love. And uh, if you've got to choose one to be terrible at, we chose the wrong one. <laughs> so, I mean, we, we should be really good at love. That, that should be the thing that Christians are really good at and churches are really known for and faith communities are really known for. And the reason we're not good at that is because we're just not very mature. And I'm not, that's, I did not say that, okay? Paul said that. So don't, don't blame me. Paul said that because Paul talks about attaining the fullness of the measure of Christ. Paul talks about it's our job as Christians to become more like Christ. And then he says, once we've attained the full measure of Christ, we'll no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, and that is Christ. And you see, I mean, Paul talks about, you know, we, we all go through a period of infancy where we are kind of blown here and there by every wind of teaching. So maybe we should have a little bit of compassion and understanding with those who may be going through that season of their life. And, and they're wrestling with those things right now. But we who are mature should realize that we can speak the truth in love. And we can create a welcoming community in which que hard questions can be asked and doubts can be welcomed. And we can accept the fact that they may not agree 100% with every point of doctrine that we agree on. Or they may not 100% agree with everything that we do. But we can have some type of community where we can still treat one another with kindness and respect. So the, the example of this is Jesus, right? I mean, Jesus is the, is the ultimate example of this. And there's an example in Scripture of how Jesus dealt with those who have doubts. And you're familiar with it if you've been in church for any length of time. Uh, it wasn't just any person that had doubt. It was one of his core disciples. It was one of the twelve. One of the twelve who doubted. I mean, this is one who was with Jesus for the three years, that heard everything that Jesus taught, that heard Jesus say he was going to go to Jerusalem, that heard Jesus say he was going to die, that heard Jesus say in three days he was going to live again. But when, when Thomas started hearing rumors of a resurrection, see, he wasn't around when the first time when they saw Jesus, and he started hearing rumors of a resurrection. It's just something didn't add up for him. It just something, he couldn't quite put the pieces together. And in John chapter 20, uh, verse 25, it says, the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But Thomas said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand in his side, I will not believe. Now, that's, that's not just a, somebody that kind of casually followed Jesus. That's not somebody that just, you know, came to church on Easter. Uh, I mean, this is a core disciple. This is somebody that was with Jesus every day. I mean, a core disciple of Jesus saying, I don't I don't believe it. And because of that, he became famous as Doubting Thomas. You've probably heard of Doubting Thomas. He kind of gained that nickname. Uh, John never uses that nickname in the Bible. And Jesus never called him by that nickname. But church history called him by that nickname. So through church history, Thomas became known as Doubting Thomas. But what happened when Thomas doubted? Jesus showed up. When Thomas doubt, we, we think, well, when you doubt, you know, like we talked last week about rebuking the doubt. When you doubt, that's when you're losing your faith. So when you doubt, um, that's when, you know, you're, you're losing connections to Jesus. But when Thomas doubted, Jesus showed up. And what did Jesus do? He lovingly and kindly showed Thomas the truth. The, the next uh, verse there, um, 27 and 28, he said to Thomas, 
Put your finger here and see my hand. Reach out your hand and put it on my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. The Reverend Thomas Barclay writes this, only to Thomas, only the one who question, only to the one who questions does Jesus offer this gift. And Thomas among the twelve, not Peter, not James, not John, only Thomas is the first person in all creation to declare of Jesus, my Lord and my God. Here is where the ultimate identification of Jesus as Christ as God is made possible. I mean, here, after the resurrection, the things that they thought about Jesus were confirmed and accurate, and it is the apostle who doubted. It was the one that wasn't confident and content with blind faith. He rather wanted faith with understanding. The doubter, through his questions, Thomas alone comes to fully know Jesus, not as a proposition of faith, not as something his parents taught him, not as something the church he grew up in taught him, but Thomas wrestles with that doubt and starts to know Jesus as his Lord, not just a, a concept or a, or a belief, but he truly knows him as his Lord. And I've, I've always thought that was a powerful story, and I always thought Thomas got a bad rap, and uh, I've, I've always thought that, um, you know, we, we misunderstood what was happening in that moment uh, with Thomas, and I've always found these words powerful too, because these were words that Jesus spoke immediately after Thomas. Like he said, "Because you've seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed." And our belief system is based upon um, the eyewitness testimony of people like Thomas and people like James and John and Paul and others who have seen Jesus and believe, and we believe their eyewitness testimony, and therefore we believe. And Jesus said, "Blessed are you who believe, because it takes faith to do that." So I've always thought that was powerful, but there was a part of this story that I had not really caught before, uh, and if I had caught it, I'd just forgotten about it, and it's in the, like, I'm reading through this story, and it's, it's so familiar, and it's just an offhanded comment. I want to go back to verse 26, and in, or, no, excuse me, I went back on my slides. I want to go back to verse 26. This is John just telling the story. So Thomas confesses his doubt. Thomas says, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, I won't believe. And then John says, a week later. Because I, I guess in my mind, I always had like Thomas confessed his doubt and Jesus showed up. And as soon as Thomas said, I doubt, Jesus showed up and said, here you go. Stop doubting and believe. That's not what happened. Jesus waited a week. It's not the first time he did that. Remember the story of Lazarus when they were doubting whether or not Jesus cared and whether or not he, he waited. Jesus waited a week. Before he showed up to Thomas. Where was Thomas during that week? I never, I never thought. Of it. Thomas sat in his doubts for a week. With the other disciples. Whom he questioned their sanity. <laughs> like I don't. You, I mean. Can you imagine the conversations they were having during that week? Because Thomas hung with the other disciples. Thomas still belonged. Even though he doubted, he still belonged. And even though he was questioning a core belief, he was questioning that they, what they believed, they didn't feel the urge to kick him out. He sat in it for a week. And I, that to me is, is part of the answer. That's what I want you to see in this story today. I want you to see this. If you are in the process of deconstructing find a faith community that allows for hard questions 
and allows some room for love and allows some room for kindness and respect and stays. You, you don't have to walk out. You don't have to burn the whole thing down to ask hard questions. Stay and sit in your doubt in the context of a faith community. Find a safe place to do that. And I know there's a lot of places that aren't safe to do that, but find a safe place to do that. Well, even if it's not a church, if it's a group of Christians, if it's a group of believers, if it's a small group that you can sit in. Um, and if you are not in the process, which is most of us in this room, probably not in the process of deconstructing, let's make room for people who are. Like, let's make room for the Thomases. You're welcome to stay. You do not have to get out of here. Your questions don't scare us. You can disagree with us on what we believe are core matters of the faith, and it, it, that's fine. You, we, we welcome. Let's reason together on these things. Let's talk through these things together. Let's go back and try to understand uh, what Jesus teaches and what, you know, what the Bible teaches. Let's try to understand those things. Can, can we do both? And, and I think we can if we're willing to follow the way of love, if we're willing to, to make this a safe place. Here's the way I wrote it at the end. Let's give room for the Spirit to work. Because it's not our job to convince people that we're right and they're wrong. Let's give room for the Spirit to work. It's our job to plant the seed. It's our job to water the seed. It's God that makes it grow. It's God that, that grows faith in the hearts of people. So let's make this a safe place. Let's, let's, let's provide good soil so that faith may grow. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for uh, the fact that John put that in there about Thomas. And, I don't, you know, I'm, I'm thankful that, that, that you inspired him to write those words so that we have an example of, here's a, here's a core follower of Jesus that doubted. And we know he wasn't the only one. We know what happened with Peter. I mean, we, we, we know what happened with people who followed, who, who were as close to Jesus as you possibly could be and still had doubts and still had questions. And I'm thankful that um, you, you teach us how to create a community with love at its core so that people have space to wrestle through those doubts and have space to wrestle through those questions. And I pray that you help us to do that because it is hard and we're human and um, we, we're going to fuss and fight and argue and sometimes a disagreement spills over into an argument pretty quickly. Um, but just help us to, to follow the way of love, help us to follow the way of grace, help us to follow the way of kindness and patience and humility so that more people can come into your kingdom. It's in the name of your son Jesus we pray these things. Amen. If you are encouraged by today's talk, feel free to share it with your friends. Please also consider rating and subscribing on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please visit us online at murrayhills.com.